Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans. I'll give it a rest. You're under new management. It's Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast now. Hello and welcome to Pete and Gary's Military History. Uh, and today's podcast, we're going to uh, continue the story about Albert Ballpeak. We're doing a lot about balls, and and I it, I don't know if you remember the lottery, Pete. They used to because they talk about balls, and they used to have Mystic Meg, and I I want a sort of similar moniker. And I thought perhaps some um, gastric gas. Gastric gas. That's that's fabulous. Yeah. yeah, and it's it reflects your inner workings so well. It does. It does. So what are we doing today, Pete? We're talking about Albert Borgen. Um, we we've done one podcast on him recently, and this is following that up, isn't it? It is, because uh, he first came to prominence, as you will remember, although as it was a couple of weeks ago, perhaps not, uh, in the uh, air battles over the Somme in uh, the summer of 1916. Um, I'd say he was uh, impossibly brave. He'd got his own method of aerial fighting that we talked about. No one seemed to be able to emulate it. What he'd do is he'd fly his Newport 17 straight into a, 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 a giant German formation. It sounds unbelievable, but it appears to be true. Split them up, then pounce on the weakest and most isolated and stupid looking. So what I would call the Gary of the formation. And then uh, he'd uh, dive underneath his prey, pull his Lewis back up on his top wing and riddle his victim from below. The classic balls up. Yeah, I remember all of that, Pete. Thanks, do, thanks for, for reminding me. <laughs> now, during that, he 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 was suffering a bit, wasn't he? He'd asked for uh, for leave, uh, rather pointedly, of his uh, superiors, and he was turned down in the first occasion. But uh, he he had actually been home for some time, hadn't he? Yeah, he'd been sent home. He was showing signs of combat fatigue, uh, uh, and uh, and he'd, he'd had a brief period back home being. Well, fated to sort of the wrong word in some ways because the, the British didn't really make heroes of their aviation here, uh, aviation aces, because uh, there was this fear of what would happen if they were shot down and also a rec- more of a recognition of, and I think we'll make this point now, We I know you insist on us making this point, that uh, although the aces and the, the, the scout pilots get all the publicity, the real work, the killing work, is actually done by the... Uh, photographic reconnaissance pilots and the uh, the uh, uh, artillery observation people. They're the ones that kill their numbers in their hundreds and thousands. Uh, the, the, the aces have always been the icing on the cake. Nevertheless, <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about one of the greatest, Captain Albert Ball, DSO and Bar, when he went back. He's the hero of the entire Art Royal Flying Corps and he's returning to active service in early April 1917, commanding a flight of 56 squadron now uh, you might want to uh, tell us a bit about what they're flying what are they flying well at this point pete they're they're equipped with the se5 scout that's not the se5a pete that's a common mistake people make it's the se5 ah. oh and uh, once more it's a really imaginative name for an aircraft uh, and it was one more vital piece in the in the jigsaw of new aircraft that would take the RFC into the final two years of the war. It was a strongly built single-seater biplane, 
Ah, oh, now this is interesting, Pete. It was primarily armed with a Vickers machine gun fitted with a Constantinesco interruptor gear. But it also still carried a Lewis gun, which uh, was mounted on the top wing. Now, it, the Hispano Suzo engine could generate, listen to this, Pete, 114 miles per hour at 10,000 feet. And that gave the SE5 an effective ceiling of around 17,000 feet. Blimey, that, that's, uh, that's uh, a promising sounding aircraft. Uh, now, um, it, it, uh, we'll come back to this aircraft because, funnily enough, and, and again, uh, your experience in contracts and, and, and governance and the rest of it, you'll know that when you get something new, there's often teething problems, and, and we're, we're going to come on to that. Uh, but it would be a great part of uh, aeroplane. And alongside the uh, this, the uh, French Spad and the uh, Sopwith Camel and the RE8 and other Air Bristol fighter, this would be, as, as you said, this is what's going to take over. But it's not just the aircraft that are special about 56 Squadron, is it, Pete? No, it isn't. It's not at all. They, they, they come to be seen as a sort of elite formation of scout pilots, uh, uh, almost like a, and they're actually sometimes called the anti-Richtofen flying circus squadron. They're, they're, I'm not sure that's true, but that was their reputation. I'm not even uh, sure if Richtofen had an auntie. <laughs> He did have an auntie. He had lots of aunties. Um, and he was, uh, uh, it, it, it ended up de facto an, an elite formation of scout pilots that were selected by the squadron leader, who uh, was Major Richard uh, Blomfield. Uh, and and they, they, were, they were either proven aces or people who'd showed a lot of promise uh, in their flying training schools. Uh, now, um, what did Ball think of the uh, SE5 when he first got it, do you think, Gary? Well, interestingly, um, he thought it was totally unsuited to his unique method of fighting. Um, it, the SE-5 was an aircraft that was built for power. It had the ability to zoom down, fire, and rapidly climb away, and that was the key to its performance, whereas Ball favoured the manoeuvrability and the fast turning of the Newport, and he wasn't shy of putting his point forward. <laughs> What did he say? What did he say, Gary? Well, this is a quote. We're going to share the the um, the Albert Ball quotes today. I mean, he said Alan Ball. The Albert <laughs> Ball quotes today, Pete. Um, Are you going to? I hope you're not going to annoy our listeners by reading it in a squeaky uh, squeaky Portsmouth and England midfielder <laughs> accent. No. So this is Captain Albert Ball of Fifty Six Squadron, and he says they've put me on a blank, 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 blank machine. What could that mean? I think he means a shit machine, Pete. Oh, right. But I not should ba- not not bastard then. I suppose it's got more letters. Bastard, it's got more. It? This has only got four stars, Pete. Oh well. They've put me on a blank, blank, blank machine. But I should like to get back to my old machine as soon as possible. Oh, I shall never be able to do my job. I must fly another machine, and then I shall get along with the job. Now, he's not alone in harbouring initial doubts about the SE5. It, it, it's got a lot of minor faults. And it's the sort of thing that really piss you off if you're, you know, you're trying to fly an aeroplane in action. And there's these little problems. Uh, they don't understand how the aeroplane can get to the front with obvious design flaws. There's all sorts of things. The telescopy thing, I'm not, I'm very technical minded, but so I'm simplifying enormously for you here, Gary. The telescopy thing was uh, was wrong. Uh, they had a big metal plate under the seat to protect their arses from fire from below, and that was heavy and slowed them down so they were easier to hit. There's all sorts of bloody things wrong with them. Um, but ball. Although he thought it was a shit aircraft, he, he had the sense to, 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 to do his best to overcome them. And this is equipment officer. Each squadron had a, an officer, sort of, you know, an engineer officer. like. And this is Lieutenant Hubert Charles of 56 Squadron. He says this. Albert Ball finally decided that the SE-5 was such a bad aeroplane that it would be quite unsafe to fly over the lines. He got General Trenchard to let him have a 110 Le Rhone Newport again. He and I spent many hours at night <laughs> trying to work out how to make the SE-5 work. He was a very unusual combination of a fighter pilot with a real interest in aeroplanes. The majority of them didn't have aeroplane knowledge, but he definitely had. Between the two of us, we finally cooked up the SE-5 so that it really worked. 
General Trenchard fi approved finally, and all our other airplanes were altered to the same design that we'd evolved and improved on Albert Ball's machine. And, and there were a lot of changes, a lot of the trivial, but somewhat like moving that plate were crucial to, to the performance of the machine. And performance is important in action. Speed is important. This sort of thing. And it becomes, in my view, the most effective British scout of the war. And idiots will always say, hey, they stopped with Camel. But the stop with Camel wasn't... The great aces loved the SE5 because you could dive down and you could, from out of clouds or the sun, and kill before you knew they were there. Uh, it, 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 it sort of releases a, a great warplane doesn't it uh, how, how do you think ball well you've said you, we've said ball was a bit nervy and and, and not by the way i make it clear he wasn't afraid but he was a bit on edge a bit nervous wanted a rest got exhausted and he'd been sent back home how did he feel about coming back into the fight gary well he's itching to get back into harness as he describes it and uh, i've got another quote here from him pete and he says Five of my best pals were done in yesterday, and I think it's so rotten. We have not got our machines ready yet, but when we do, oh, I do hope we shall let them have it. So that means he's like, you know, five of his friends are, are either dead or missing. Yeah. Now, Monday, 23rd of April. Uh, remember that uh, the, uh, the the Battle of Arras had started on, I think it was the 9th of April. My memory is not my best feature, is it? It was the 9th of April. Uh, and, uh, and now... Uh, the, the SE5 scouts are considered ready. So they tend to be called the SE5A now. And that's what, what most people would call SE5A. Uh, what, a, what a name to conjure with. As you said, Gary, it, it just you must stay awake at night thinking about that name. Um, at this time, you know, Captain Albert Ball, the leading ace of the RFCs, ready. And he's already flown several patrols in his personal Newport scout which he was permitted to fly on solo patrols. And this was entirely due to his unique status as the premier ace of the RFC. Now, Bald made his first flight. Hang on, hang on, hang on. So that means that Joe Bloggs couldn't say, oh, I'll, oh no, 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 so, no. Besides my SE5A, I'll have, I'll, have, uh, I'll have one of them as well, please. Now, this is a special. It's special. He's granted special permission to do so. I mean, but if... Those of you that have listened to the, the first podcast will remember that whenever Ball was engaged in action, he would come back and his aircraft would be riddled. You know, there'd be damage to all sorts of parts of his plane. So, you know, he, he probably needed more than one, one of them. Now, um, he, he comes back and makes his first flight back on the 14th of April. And he's, he's clearly intent on feeling his way back into the saddle after his six-month layoff. That's quite a layoff for a pilot, Pete. It is. It's a, and things do change on the Western Front in that time. That That's four, what, oh, one, two, three, four. That's uh, about six months. It's about six months, yeah, absolutely. So this is Captain Albert Ball, 56 Squadron, and he says, I had my first two flights this morning. In the first one, the Hun ran off. But in the second, I managed to get a few rounds in and made him run. In a few days, we shall start real work, and then I hope to have tons of sport. Now the SC five. It's important that that I mean, we bit the the Royal Flying Corps been going through bloody April. There airplanes been shot down. They had no effective response, and and the advent of the SC five is really important because it's the first great single seater scout of of nineteen seventeen to arrive at the front. the uh, The SOP with uh, the, the the SOP with scout was fairly useless. The SOP with camel had been delayed. That would that would that's still a month or two away. Uh, so this is important because the infantry are attacking on the ground. And uh, and if you look back at that date, twenty uh, third of April, that that's that's the time of a great attack on the the ground when they had to cover the French for the failure of the French offensive on uh, in the middle of, uh, of of April. So this is important. Now, um, this is a quote uh, from, uh, from, from Ball. Uh, he says this. I'm so fagged tonight, but feel like I must send you a line. We did our first two real jobs today. And I, I got two Huns. One I crashed and the other I set on fire. I had six fights altogether. One of the Huns I got with a, a Newport and one with a, a, a SE5. My machines were very badly hit about uh, and are having new planes tonight. Well, now I'm on the job at 5am, so I simply must sleep. Gary, what does he mean? 
He means Dawn Patrol, doesn't he? He does. Now, it's interesting. He himself is making comment about how badly hit about he is. We've had we've made this comment. To a certain degree, it's just luck. You know, his aircraft's getting hit all the time. It could be his, his, his uh, petrol tank. It could be him that's struck. But, uh, you know, it, it's it, incredible it, luck. Is, it, is, is his combat method, just flying at a formation, is that appropriate to the sort of formation fighting? That, and the crowded skies, there's loads more aeroplanes in the sky. Is it appropriate? No, I mean, he's taking enormous risks, Pete. And and it's not unusual, as he himself is saying, for his aircraft to, to suffer considerable damage as a direct consequence. It's not just light damage on in some occasions. He's talking about four or five planes being changed. You know, this is severe damage. Well, here's a quote from him again. Uh, I had three flights. Fights. Sorry, I do apologise. I managed to bring one down. Crashed in a road. This I did with my Newport. After coming down, I had to have five new planes. For the Hun, I got about 15 shots through my spars. Well, next I went up in my, in my SE5 and had a very poo-poo time. Five shots in my right strut. Four in the planes and, and two just behind my head. This was done by five Albatross scouts, but I got one of them and set it on fire at 14,000 feet. Poor old chap inside. I, I, I should simply hate to be set on fire. How would you feel about being set on fire, Gary? Yeah, I think I should simply hate it too, Pete. Now, it's soon he's back in harness. In 1917, dogfights between increasing numbers of aircraft have become far more common. But to Albert Ball, superior numbers just like a red bag to the proverbial ball. A red bag. A red bag. A red bag. It's like a red, a red rag, <laughs> but it's but it's shaped like a bag. It must be really infuriating to the average bull. It must be. Anyway, I'm going to be bald again now, and Captain Albert Ball says this. I was attacked by 20 last night and had to fire all my ammunition, getting two of them. It was dark when I returned, and everyone thought that I must have been done in, but I had to stop on their side until it was dark, for I could not fight my way through without ammunition. My right plane was hit a few times, and I had to have a new one. I have now got another two Huns making four this time, and my total is 34. Only three more to be got before I'm top of England and France again. In order to whack the German man, he means Bolker, I'd love to get about ten more. If it's God's will that I should do it, then I will come home. Oh, I do so hope it can be managed. Tonight, if it clears up, I'm taking off. Uh, I'm taking all my flight out for a real good smack. I'm off in my new port. Then at 5.30, I come back and do a job on SE5 with my flight. You see, they do one or two jobs each day and I lead them. But during the remainder of the day, I go up in my new port and have a try myself. This is the only way to get them. Just keep at them all day. Oh, that, that's, I mean, that's his real love, isn't it? The solo flights. Uh, he's a bit. He's, he's still a lone wolf, isn't he? He is, Gary? but he's doing his duty as a flight leader. But it's clear that he loves those solo patrols. Absolutely clear. Now, uh, he said that means he spends more. That would mean he spent more air time he, in the air than anyone. He's up there more than anyone, yeah. And, of course, he's at more risk as a result. And this is recording officer, that's sort of uh, like the adjutant sort of thingy, Lieutenant Thomas Marson of the 56th Grand. He says he preferred to patrol alone rather than to lead his flight on patrol. He wanted always to be in the air. During flying weather, he was up and out by five o'clock in the morning and completely exhausted by his efforts, would be in bed and asleep by six o'clock in the evening. A bit of kid to yourself. Absolutely, but without all the work in between. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in letters, he start one thing he notes. What do you notice about the letters we've read together? We notice what does he start doing? Well, he's, he's starting he... to get obsessed with the score and he's calculating his kills. Uh, so total hands now thirty four. Two more to beat the Frenchman. So he's, he's he's in his own mind. He's in competition. It's a bit obsessive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. In all probability, Pete, he hadn't really recovered from the combat fatigue that had forced him back to England in October 1916. Yeah, he keeps adding up his victory. Do you think it's like competition? It's like, well, like Premier League goal scoring leagues. And do you think that's what it is? It's just 
Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he becomes obsessed, it would appear, with beating the scores of, of other aces, and in particular, the French ace, Capitan Georges Guénemer. And you mentioned Bolker. We mentioned Bolker before. Bolker, of course, was dead, so he wasn't going to shoot any more down, was he? Uh, who? How many had Guénemer got? Uh, I can't say that. He'd got 36 victories, and... Um, it became a great motivation for Ball to beat him. It's part of what drove him on to take ever greater risks. Well, 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 well. It's 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 all quite exciting. Now, below them, the, the battles are going on. And they're coming through. They're coming towards Bullock or they're coming uh, towards the end. I mean, the, the, the Battle of Arras is, has degenerated uh, into just a slogging match, trying to distract attention from the mutiny in uh, French army. Who, and uh, so... Uh, but and what's also happening is from um, early May they're also starting to switch to Flanders where they're they're planning their what would become uh, the third Eves. Um So fifty um, six squadron, however, stay on that front, don't they, on the Arrows front? Now, do you know what? What? How would you describe what what Ball's doing at the, the first week of May? Well, it's it's Ball's building up into a frenzy. It's you'd almost describe it, Pete, as a spiral of violence, and and that's only going to have one logical end. It is. It is. It's uh, it's the end game. Uh, so this is a, a quote from him, and just listen to this, Gary. At about seven thirty, I sighted four red albatross scouts between Douai and the lines going south. Red, that's probably Richthofen's some of his uh, squadron. I dived on the nearest red HA hostile aircraft. This is from a, a report, so that's why it's formal. But uh, scout, but four or five HA scouts were coming down on my tail. So I turned steeply and pulled down Lewis' gun. Nearest HA fired at, at and overshot me, and I put in a good burst of 50 Vickers gun rounds into HA. I then fastened onto the tail of HA and followed it down to 2,000 feet, riddling HA meanwhile. HA dived into earth in the rough ground between Halte and Vitry. I then turned and climbed and joined the scrimmage, which was now taking place between a number of double-seater HA and HA scouts and Sopwith scouts, Bristol fighters and FEs. I was circling and manoeuvring for a position and got onto the tail of a white HA scout with a pointed nose and put in a good burst of Vickers. HA dived steeply and cleared. The melee gradually made towards Douai, H.A. being outmanoeuvred and yielding ground. I went south to Cambrai and over Sailly viewed a white two-seater albatross. I dived down on H.A. and put in good bursts of Vickers and a drum of Lewis from 100 to 25 yards range. H.A. hurtled down, but owing to the dusk, the time now being 8.10pm, his ultimate end could not be observed. I climbed, pick up, picked up SE5A 4854 and returned home. Notice it's SE5A by this time. Well, uh, he's still relying on luck a lot, isn't he? He is. Uh, but even he's got to realise that he's got good fortunes, not inexhaustible. Now, his fellow pilots eyed him with a mixture of respect and amazement. And one 19-year-old was awestruck to find himself posted to the same squadron as his, as his hero. And this is second lieutenant Roger Chayworth Muster of 56 Squadron. And he says, Captain Ball is surpassing his previous efforts and has already accounted for about six huns off his own bat. He came back the other day with a huge hole right through the tail of the machine. The shell had carried away all his elevator controls except one strand of wire with which he managed to get the machine down. He got out and immediately got into another machine and was off again. He really is a marvel. He always comes back with his machine absolutely riddled with bullets. Now, the point we emphasise again is that's not the best way. The best way is the ricked off and the manic way, which is to kill without risk. Uh, the Bolker way, the Bolker dicta, that, that's the future of, of aviation, uh, of, of sorry, scout fighting. Now, you've got another quote uh, from uh, Lieutenant Reginald Hoyge, and this is uh, 56 quote. I know he was a, a bit of a, a toff in some ways, the son of the, the Lord Mayor of Nottingham, a wealthy business, but it, but he seems to have been a nice, quiet lad, doesn't he? Well, t tell us what Hoyge says. I don't know how you pronounce his name. He was the quietest young kid you ever saw. The most inoffensive youngster you'd think he wouldn't punch anybody on the nose if he could duck him. But when he got into the air, he was all hair and teeth. He was an excellent shot. He spent a great deal of time on the ground test firing his guns in the pits. Now, 
during lockdown, Pete, I've become all hair and... <laughs> well, you seem to have entirely new teeth and your hair is going places I would never have imagined. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, uh, 5th of May, it's uh, we're, we're, we're moving into May. Ball crosses uh, the lines with his patrol. He's in SE5, I think. And he finds himself again, either by accident or design, separated from uh, the rest of his flight. So tell us what happens this time. It's quite a story again. Yeah, once again, this is Captain Albert Ball. Crossing the line, I travelled northeast at 8,000 feet and viewed two HA coming from the direction of Dwey towards Carving at 9,000 feet. I made towards carving in order to climb, HA following. I climbed to 11,000 feet and by this time the nearest HA had got on my tail at a distance of 200 yards. I did a quick turn and got underneath HA, the other HA being then about a quarter of a mile away. I pulled the Lewis gun down and fired two drums at a very short range. HA made no attempt to get away. I fired another drum but HA by this time had got away. I followed and got on H.A.'s tail and fired quick bursts from Vickers and Lewis guns at very short range and H.A. went down out of control. By this time, the other H.A. had started firing. I climbed again, keeping away from H.A. and manoeuvred for a chance to get on H.A.'s tail. This chance never came, for H.A. came nose on at me, firing two guns. I opened fire with Vickers' gun and kept the trigger pressed using one in one tracers, which could easily be seen going right into HA, until the machines came almost into each other. My SE5 was hitting the engine and I was covered in oil. I climbed and engine kept up revolutions but I lost all oil pressure. No other HA came along and I went down to about 3,000 feet. Both HAs were lying on the ground within 400 yards of each other, completely wrecked. I then went back towards the lines and met two other HA near Lens, Having only very few rounds of Vickers left and not being able to see through sights for oil, I put my nose well down and made for home. Although the engine got very little oil under no pressure, it ran for three quarters of an hour and got home okay. Now, that's his report, but this is... To, I mean, from what I can gather of what you've just said, he ended up in a game of chicken flying straight towards another plane. Straight towards him. It's like, like those games. Who who get whose nerve will give way first? Now we have another account that sort of refers to this because that's those words you read that in a pretty cool manner, and of course that's from a report. It would be it would it's just quite flat, isn't it? But this is the state ball was in, and this is the recording officer again, Thomas Marson of Fifty Six Grunner. On his return to the aeroplane, his engine was found to have been shot through, and there were several bullets through the back of the pilot's seat. Flushed in face, his eyes brilliant, his hair blown and dishevelled. Crikey. <laughs> he came to the squadron office to make his report, but for a long time was in so overwrought a state that dictation was an impossibility to him. God is very good to me. God must have me in his keeping. I was certain that he meant to ram me. The possibility that his opponent, finding himself mortally hit and determined to have a life for a life, occurred to him. In that event, his nerve failed him at the last. Ball did not flinch, but in nervous exhaustion, he paid the price. And that's the, the obverse, the other side of that, that the account you just read. Um, I'm now, just so at this point, he's, he's, he's displaying many of the classic signs of severe combat fatigue, Pete, isn't he? In truth, he's not yet recovered from the damage inflicted on his nervous system. In consequence of his, let's face it, heroic efforts on the Somme. Now, that same night, he writes home to his girlfriend, and once more, you're going to be Captain Albert Ball. I am. When I'm happy, I dig in the garden and sing. I don't get as much time off, but what I get is enjoyed. Oh, won't it be nice when all this beastly killing is over, and we could just enjoy ourselves and not hurt anyone. I hate this game, but it's the only thing one must do just now. And uh, it, it's just all this hoping for a time after the war, after after all the killing, it's it's quite sad, really. Note the date, of course. That was the fifth uh, of uh, of May. Yeah, now there, there can't be any rest, Aris. Pete. The the next day, he's back up in the the hostile skies, and this time he's flying his Newport Scout because the SE five was undergoing much needed and extensive repairs. It's, it's so what, this is six. Of, this is what we were amazing. saying earlier, Pete. You can't keep doing this. Well, he goes up on the 6th of May and once again he's separated from the rest of the patrol. 
the, the new port couldn't keep up with the faster SC5. So that's interesting in itself, if you see what I mean. And by this time, by the way, Ball is starting to appreciate the SE5. Uh, anyway, this is what he says. I went on towards Dwy and, and viewed four red Albatross Scouts, new type, going towards Cambrai at 10,000 feet. My new port being at 11,000 feet. I got above HA and dived on the nearest one, getting in the centre of the formation of HAs, which broke up. I got underneath the uh, nearest HA and at close range fired two and a half drums of one-in-one -one tracer, which was seen to enter the, the HA. You'll, you'll hear he's using the same balls-up technique that we talked about earlier. The HA went down and was seen to crash on the ground near the crossroads and railway south of Sancor. The remainder of the HA kept well away and did not attack me until on my way home. I easily outclimbed HA and also could easily outmaneuver them, HA being very slow on turns. I could not fight again owing to having no ammunition. HA only got three hits on my Newport. Three bullets into the yeah. Newport. Again. Only three. Yeah. yeah. Now, what do you think should have happened at this point? Well, there is an argument in there that he should have been sent home at this point. But, you know, after all, he's an experienced scout pilot and his task was to fly and fight. That's what he was there to do. They need him, don't they? They need him, and he was certainly more than willing. You know, he's, he's trapped on this treadmill of competing victory scores, and there's there's absolutely little doubt that he he would have resented being sent home before he had his chance to beat his French competitor, Captain George Guenemar, and uh, rule the roost once. Rule more. the roost, yeah, that's right. And here's another quote, just a short quote from uh, from the. I've got ten more Huns, and my total is now forty. Two in front of my French rival. Oh, I'm having a topping time. Notice the mood swings. Uh, today or tomorrow, I'm being presented to Sir Douglas Haig. I'm very pleased. I just want to get a few more Huns if I can. Just a few more. Just a few more. Nah. On the night of 6th of May, he sent a, a last letter home. And again, he's referring to uh, Ball. Uh, he says, uh, I made my 42nd hun yesterday, so I'm now four in front of the Frenchman. Constant competitive instincts in view. Do you think uh, do you, he's really not, I don't know, he's a product of the Somme skies, not yeah, skies. Yeah, there is an argument that the... Uh, the increasingly sophisticated scout tactics of 1917 had largely passed him by. His technique was still largely dependent on his own amazing personal skill in close combat. And luck, and luck. And luck, yeah. And in a sense, Albert Ball's the antith antithesis of Richthofen, isn't he? You know, he's a lone wolf. Uh, he adopts that method of fighting and it can't easily, and we've said this before, be passed on to a new generation of pilots. Well, I know you love your cricket, but I've always described it. You can watch a well-executed cover drive and, and, and you can think, wow, that's beautiful. But can you do it? Can you do it, Gary? Can you do a well-executed cover drive? No, I hate cricket and I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, But I think oh. the point you're making, uh, the, the tactics suit ball and they suit ball alone. That's it. Yeah, if you if you're under concentrated fire of multiple Spandau machine guns, you you you're taking big risk, and nobody's lucky all the time. Nobody is. Fateful evening, Monday, seventh of May. Uh, that that date. Why do I know that date? What? So he was born on the tenth of January. That was uh, my birthday. Yeah. Yes. And and uh, what's seventh uh, of May? Why why does that sing out to me? What happens on the seventh of May? That's my birthday, Pete. So, like, my day is a day of joy to everyone and balls born, and your day is a symbol of death, despair and misery. Well, you could put it like that. I just did. Anyway, a call came through to the headquarters of the wing, uh, ordering a strong patrol because there's a, a, a new Jasta circus about and they want to meet them head on. So 10 SC-5As of 56 Squadron combined with six SPADs. That's a, a French, it's a very good airplane, a bit like the uh, SE-5 in some ways, to sweep over Douai and Cambrai. And Albert Ball, he's leading A flight and uh, that's with uh, Lieutenant G. Maxwell and Lieutenant K.J. Nags. That's a good name, Nags. Uh, and they're going at a height of 7,000 feet, while Captain Henry Mainches led sea flight. That's uh, Lieutenant Reginald Hoyge and Le Lieutenant... Know this name, Rog? Uh, Rog? Who's Rog? Uh, Gary. Cecil Lewis. Do you know that name? Yeah, and, and actually that's one of the only names you've been able to say correctly in that sentence. 
Yes, it is. It is. Uh, and in the layer above them, at 9,000 feet, Captain William Crowe's got B-flight. And that's uh, your friend that you read the quote from, Lieutenant Roger Chaworth Musters. Lieutenant Arthur Reese david do you remember yeah, him? Yeah, I remember the, him. Uh, and uh, Lieutenant John Leach. And they're still higher at 10,000 feet. What's happening is they get, the British are now, they get, they're, not, they're not flying, they're going up as, a, as squadrons and flying at different heights, layered, layered. They, they lose cohesion because uh, it's cloudy. And this is a quote from Captain William Crow. Now, you remember he's, he's uh, at, the, he's at uh, 10,000 feet and he says this, he's 56 squadron. He's, what does Crow say, Gary? Three flights led by Ball, Mike, Jess and myself left the ground at about 5.45pm with the express purpose of engaging the Richtofen Circus if they were in the air. The weather was very bad. Layers of thick banks of clouds hit the sky and they ranged from 2,000 feet to 10,000 feet with varying sized gaps. We crossed the line south of Arras between the layers of clouds at 4,000 feet and Ball, who was leading, shortly after led the formation into a large bank of clouds which resulted in the various members of the formation losing contact with one another. I found myself alone when I got into clear space again, but some distance on my right I could see a number of SE5s flying in very loose formation. I made for them, but a cloud bank enveloped me on the way and I lost them. Now, this is something that's happening. They're at different levels. There's cloud over the place. So they get glimpses of people at different heights and everybody's back. everything's sort of in trouble. Now, the German response isn't long in coming. Uh, they, they didn't have one mass formation. They, they too were in different flights and they're, they're also searching out the British. Uh, and one, one of them is Lieutenant Wilhelm Almanroder. And uh, uh, he's the brother of uh, the German ace, Lieutenant Karl Almanroder. And this is what Wilhelm Almanroder says. Suddenly they came in alert. Some enemy planes had crossed the lines. Four of us took off immediately. Lothar von Richthofen, that's uh, Richthofen's brother and a, a very good ace on his own account, led our little formation. I flew to his left and a little to the rear. Mohinik, uh, oh, sorry, uh, whatever, flew to his right and to the rear. And neither Essa or Simon was, and either Essa or Simon was last. We were flying patrol from south to north over the trenches at a height of about 2,000 metres and I was searching for enemy fighters to the west, looking up and down. So you've got scattered British flights up, you've got, and you've got isolated German formations. So all over the sky there's different groups of aircraft, clashing, unclashing, and, and it's not clear what happened then or now. And I've, the contemporary accounts are seriously muddled and laced with inconsistencies. Now, Second Lieutenant William Crow was one of the last to see Ball. And this is the account that he gave, Gary. Now, we called him captain previously because he's leading the oh, flight. Yeah. So, so that may well be, have been his that, rank. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, I'll, uh, well, uh, that's, uh, uh, yes. I'll, it I may well have been his rank, but he was leading the yeah. flight, wasn't he? Now, yeah, he was. as it got darker and darker, I decided to return to our lines. And on the way, I saw a solitary SE-5 flying due north a few miles over the lines and firing very lights. I immediately proceeded in its direction in an endeavour to join it. And getting close, I saw it was Ball. It did not appear to see me for he flew straight into a cloud bank in a northeasterly direction. I followed him. When I got out of the clouds again, I saw Ball diving after an enemy aeroplane which disappeared into a cloud and which was hotly pursued by Ball. I followed through the same cloud, which was a big one, and when I got through to the opening on the other side, I could neither see Ball nor his opponent, and I did not see him again. The height was then 4,000 feet. Now, Ball was... Uh... It, it, it appears he was in combat with the Albatross T3 of Lothar von Richthofen. Uh, uh, and Almanroder, Wil, Wilhelm Almanroder, was somewhere nearby. Uh, although Crow and Lewis, because uh, uh, um, Cecil Lewis was nearby as well, N neither of these saw Almanroder. They only saw uh, Lothar von Richthofen. And this is what uh, Wilhelm Almanroder says. I looked round and, and then saw, about 20 metres below me, Lothar in a wild circling dogfight with a British fighter. Both opponents circled round below me, but neither had a chance to shoot. As I was higher, I would have, have I had a chance to fire. Uh, I, I would have had a chance to fire, but I had a feeling that I had better not interfere. 
Beside this, I could not understand where the other aircraft had gone, and I was afraid that they might return. So th there's a lot of confusion going on here. Now, Crow's trying his best to catch up with Ball, as we heard in Crow's speech. But he's got something else on his mind. What's that? Yeah, by this point, the SE-5's been in the air for nearly three hours, so they're going to be running f very short of fuel. And uh, William Crow says this, as I knew that my patrol must be running low, sorry, petrol. As I knew that my <laughs> petrol must be running low, I reluctantly made for our lines, unaccompanied, as Lewis and I had lost one another in the clouds. On the way back, I met a two-seater going home and had a quick crack at it without any apparent luck. I eventually had to land owing to the darkness at number 8 Naval Squadron, or Shell, at 8.15. When my petrol tank was examined, it was found to be almost dry. Now, if, if one, uh, one uh, SE-5's petrol tank is almost dry, then you'd thought that Ball's SE-5 would also be running short at this time. Would, would that be the case, Gary? Could yeah, and, and if he's gone any further east, he's, he's got to be at severe risk of running out of petrol by this stage. Now, Almenroder claimed to be holding the ring and still watching the contest between the two great aces. And well, they are both great aces, yeah. And this is what he says, Pete. Off you go. It, each tried to... I'll try and read it. My reading is appalling today. I do apologise, but there you go. Each tried to better his position by wide left turns. However, no one gained an advantage and not a shot was fired. Meanwhile, meanwhile, it was becoming darker and darker. Off to the northeast, Dwyer was barely visible. The sun had just gone down. Suddenly, as if both had received an order, the two left the circle and flew straight away. Lothar to the south, his opponent to the north. I believed that they wanted to stop the fight because of the darkness, but then both turned and rushed at each other as if they intended to ram. Lothar dipped under the other, and then both turned and rushed again at each other, only a few shots being fired. At the third frontal attack, Lothar came from the south and his opponent came from the north. I waited. The machine guns peppered again. This time, Lothar's opponent did not give way... Did, did, give way sideways, but dive down to the ground. I had wanted to see where the plane crashed, but I became anxious because Lothar also went down in a rather steep turn and disappeared in the mist. I flew back to our airfield in order that a search be made for Lothar. As I jumped out of the plane, it was almost night. I was immediately informed that Lothar had made an emergency landing because his engine was hit. He himself was not injured. Now, what do you think? This, there are elements of this account that do not Meet with the facts. No, I mean, there's no reliable accounts of the last combat between Albert Ball and Lothar von Richthofen. I know it's known that someone's bullets had caused sufficient engine damage to Richthofen's albatross to, to force him to make a, a false landing that evening. So, are you so? So, in one sense, Ball shot. If it was Ball as well, there, there is a, an element. But whoever it was, and it was almost certainly Ball, had, had actually shot Richthofen down. Yeah, yeah. That that does seem likely, um, but. There is another truth, because Ball, what happens to Ball? Well, whatever happened, he, he himself crash-landed near a farmhouse on the outskirts of a, a little village called uh, Anwelin, uh, which you've allowed me to say, given the amount of mistakes that have been made today. So thanks, Pete. Now, Ball is fatally injured, and he, he actually dies a few minutes later whilst being cradled in the uh, the comforting arms of a young French woman who was the first to find him. So the British hero, hero the idol of the RFC, was dead. And do you know how old he was, Pete? No, not offhand, not with my maths, no. <laughs> 20 years old. Oh dear, it's quite sad, isn't it? Now, so there's different views of what happened. The official German version of his death is he's shot down by Lothar von Richthofen. Um, but there's problems with this, because he puts in a claim for shooting down what? He puts in a claim for shooting down a triplane, which, you know, he put about the right time, but it, it, that doesn't make any sense, because the very fact that the confirming witness also claims it's a triplane only adds to suspicion that, that it's opportunistic, Pete, because... <laughs> The SE5 well, is clearly it's not a triplane. No, it's a biplane. And let's face it, Lothar van Richthofen's an experienced pilot. He'd have seen the difference in a, in a nanosecond. 
He would. He would, he would, he would, he would. It's, the, the Germans don't have any hesitation in proclaiming Ball as the 20th victory of Lothar von Richter. Why? Why? Well, it's a great propaganda uh, coup, isn't it? He's the, uh, he's the great British ace and uh, he's shot down by a Richthofen. Yeah. So, are the British completely honest about the loss of ball? Are they are they uh, a paragons of truth and virtue? No, I mean they're not really sure what's going on at all. And and at one point there's a rumour that uh, he'd survived and had been taken prisoner. So they decreed that ball must have been shot down by anti-aircraft fire, probably directed from the local church tower. Uh, is that true? No, the the evidence for any such claim is is equally shallow as the German um, version of events. And, and you're being polite there, because equally shallow means uh, it's not It's true. nonsense. Nonsense. Now, there was an eyewitness, though, and th- this is quite interesting, a Lieutenant Franz Haler. Uh, he, he's with a group of other German officers, and, what, and he sees an SE-5 emerge upside down from a large cloud with, it, with its engine stopped and trailing a thin plume of smoke. Smoke, and, and, and he smoke sp- smoke. <laughs> smoke. <laughs> It'd be cruel to laugh at you. <laughs> Still upside down, he sees it crash near, you know, near the Fashoda farmhouse, a mile from uh, where was that place? And we in. Oh, yeah. And he rushes over to find Ball had uh, been removed from the wreckage and, as reported, being cradled in the arms of a Frenchwoman. Blimey. And this is what Fra- Franz Haler says. Now, it's worth pointing out, this, Franz Haler's uh, German army, he's, he's, not, um, he's not in the air, is he? He's on the ground. And uh, he says, the aircraft was upside down with the wheels sticking up. It was leaving a cloud of black smoke, and this I considered was caused by oil leaking into the cylinders. We examined the wreckage, and we all came to the conclusion that the aircraft had not been either shot down in an air fight or anti-aircraft fire, as the dead pilot had no marks or scratches, and had not been wounded. I looked through his papers and found it was Captain Ball. We called him the English Richtofen. We were very disturbed by it all. I took his dead body to the field hospital, the doctor couldn't find any bullet wounds on the body, although the back and one leg were broken. Now, I'm going to say this. He hasn't read the German memo, has he? No, he hasn't. <laughs> to use a, a business term, you'd be an ex- I mean, he, he's, not, he's not online with the German accounts here at all. Now, uh, what, why? Let, let's talk about what, what is it about the death of these great aces that I mean, it's like it's like the death of some medieval saint sometimes, isn't it? The the, the stories that, that that circle around. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, it's slightly Arthurian, isn't it? I mean, the proper propaganda requirements of the time demanded that one of the uh, the new paladins of the air couldn't simply be defeated in combat. Oh no, you know, when their time come, to they had to embody. You know, the whole spirit of the nation's manhood. You couldn't allow them to, to simply have been beaten. So the British, he sort of flies into a, a sort of huge, ominous thundercloud and possibly he will emerge to save us from uh, from a future threat. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, and it's natural that the opposing side are not going to forgo the chance to gloat about the triumph over an enemy ace. Of course they're going to gloat. Yeah. Uh, you know, the endless claims and counterclaims are often deliberately intended to obfuscate and, and, and the often prosaic truth and propagate the image that's designed. Now, so that it gets it all gets a bit wreathed in legend. But I, I'm actually with uh, Loughton and uh, Franz Haler because he take, he, he's seen the crash, he's seen the body and he takes a fairly commonsensical approach. So go on, what does he think? Yes, so Loughton Franz Haler says this. My own opinion, and you will appreciate I was not in the air at the time, covers just two possibilities. One, the odd chance that Lothar von Richthofen, in exchanging shots with Captain Ball's SE5, hit the aircraft with a stray shot. The breach of the Vickers gun carried a a bullet hole. Or two, I have thought that Captain Ball, flying into a a cloud, turned the aircraft over and was unaware of this until he broke cloud then so low that he could do nothing and the aircraft flew into the ground. Again, when the SE-5 crashed, it did not fire and he must have been very low on fuel. It means it didn't explode, catch fire. This is all interesting because we know from, remember when we talked about the death of uh, James McCudden? 
there was a problem with the early production model uh, carburettors uh, that were fitted to, to the SC5 engine. Uh, they would flood if they were upside down, causing the engine to choke. Now, if the engine chokes and you're accidentally or otherwise upside down at a few hundred feet, what's going to happen? Well, if, if you're very low, then, you know, in this case, ball would he'd have had absolutely no chance of preventing the SE5 ploughing into the ground. Which is which is what happened to McCudden. Yeah, and if you think about the injuries that, that Ball had, that's sort of consistent with that, isn't it? A broken back and a broken leg. It sounds, sounds like it. So we're not saying anything for definite, uh, but he was dead. Uh, um, he wasn't going to come back and help us against another... Uh, 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 in the Second World War or anything like that. He was definitely dead. And it is a sad blow uh, to him. Um, what do you think is his greatest sort of thing that he leaves to to, people, to, to, to the Royal Flying Corps and later the RAF? What is it uh, that, that, in, that, 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 that inspires him? Is it his tactics is, or what is it? Well, no, it, we've mentioned that he, he couldn't train others to, to do what he did. But what he could is, is, you know, his sheer elan, as the French would call it, would uh, inspire most of his contemporaries. You know, the, the bravery uh, would be uh, uh, an example to everybody that followed. It, it just just sheer courage and guts and determination and and no odds are too this idea of no odds are too great fantastic stuff uh, is it is it officially recognised yeah, I mean, uh, his month, courage a month after his death uh, on the third of June in fact Albert Ball was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross now this is interesting Pete because the final score which had mattered so much to him and arguably in effect had lured him to his death was in the region of 40 victories. Yeah, we talked last time about how it's difficult to be exact about these kills, victories or whatever you like, but 40, around 40 is, is what he's generally assessed with. Uh, was he, how was he dealt with by the Germans? Well, the Germans, uh, you know, they give him full respect. He's buried with uh, full military honours as a, a, a respected opponent. And I, I believe he was buried at and within... I think he's in a cemetery. I'm not sure. I, I, I've never visited his grave. Uh, and uh, I know there's a marker where he fell as well. Uh, uh, Might that, be that good to visit up. once we can. So overall, how do you feel about Albert Ball? Well, the, the most telling thing for me, Pete, uh, was, was his age. 20 years old. 20 years old. He probably wasn't old enough to shave. <laughs> well, he probably wasn't. And... Uh, you know, he'd lived a life in the, in those few years that most of us would not live in twice as long, um, and and constantly, constantly on the edge of death. Um, and we mentioned on numerous occasions about how luck played its part. And uh, you know, I, I remember the bit you spoke earlier about where he was saying God favoured him, and he must have felt like that. You know, he must have thought that he was somehow protected when every time he landed, his, his aircraft's riddled and he's fine. But it all came to an end on the, on, on the, the, in that, that May day. So, oh, I'd, forgot, I'd, I'd forgotten the date. Yeah, yeah. 7th of May, I'll have to save up for your present. All right, Gary, well, I don't, think, I don't feel too much like joking at the end of that. No, Poor old Albert. that was very so. moving, Peter. I thought you, you read it beautifully. Bastard. Thank you very much, Gary. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Pete. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?